You are listening to National Security Law Today. Hey, listeners. Today we have a special two-part episode release. First, you will hear from Dmitry Alperovich, cybersecurity expert, co-founder, and executive chairman of the Silverado Policy Accelerator on the international power dynamics in the world of cyber. Following Dmitry, we have special FISA Section 702 commentary from Josh Geltzer, Deputy Assistant to President Biden and Deputy Homeland Security Advisor with the National Security Council. Josh joins us to reply to Liza Goitin's Section 702 discussion from last week's release. We hope his commentary, along with Liza's, offers a well-rounded view of the current Section 702 debate. Thanks for tuning in, and here's Elisa and Dimitri. Foreign malign influence campaigns, cyber attacks, thinly veiled threats to critical infrastructure through ransomware attacks, and the assassination of enemies perceived and real have all played a role in how the Russian Federation has worked for years, decades even, to try to topple the United States as a global leader. Now Russia finds an able partner in China. We're heading into another election cycle and a new time in the history of technology with wide deployment of AI. At the same time, Russia and China are undertaking an unprecedented effort to rewrite the new world order. Recently, the man who funded the Internet Research Agency and led the Wagner militia, Yevgeny Prigozhin, died in a plane crash after staging a brief and very public insurrection against Russia, like so many detractors before him, from Sergei Skirpal, who was poisoned in England, to Pavel Antov, who managed to plunge from a hospital window in Russia. Apparently, they don't shut the windows. To Boris Nemstov, who criticized Putin for being paid money by the oligarchs, those people who stole the wealth of the Russian people. They all, like Prigozhin, met a terrible end. Though Russia has now bombed over 200,000 apartment buildings in the Ukraine, while the world watches... On Thursday, September 14th, NBC carried a live interview of former President Trump, in which Trump stated that he appreciated the recent praise he'd gotten from Russian leader Vladimir Putin. Trump stated that if reelected or elected president, I guess, he would resolve the war within 24 hours. Now, back in 2016, the Russian Federation showed its willingness to interfere with U.S. presidential elections. Eventually, someone figured out what Russia was doing to pull Americans apart. A good American, a computer scientist, Dmitry Alperovich, the man who surfaced the Russian hack. He may have attended college and graduate school at Georgia Tech, but he was born in Moscow. Dmitry would go on to found the cybersecurity firm CrowdStrike, and he's here tonight to talk to us about Putin, election interference, and the cyber threats we're facing as a country. Dimitri, I'm so glad you came in. Thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. Really glad to be here. Congratulations, by the way. Putin finds you to be such a threat that he's now brought sanctions against you. So how does that feel? Well, I'm one of, uh, I think now, over a thousand people that have been sanctioned, including most members of Congress and the cabinet, uh, many officials around the country, many people that have worked tirelessly for unveiling Russian crimes and, and helping the cause of the Ukrainian people. So on one hand, of course, it's a nice recognition to have. On another hand, I have mixed feelings about it because it is a weird feeling to be sanctioned by a country of my birth, even though I'm an American citizen, I'm an American. I had no plans to go to Russia. I have not been to Russia in many years, but it's still very weird. 
Yeah, and I'm sure that we would like, everybody would like a situation in which there was no threat to you. And you could, of course, go back at some point through this process and others. You become a, a national security expert in addition to a cybersecurity expert and a student of Putin's methods over the years. So what motivated a person of technical skill to begin to see the bigger picture? I mean, that's not what most of you do. And you've obviously lifted your head above the signature of the malware involved in any particular hack. So what brought this about? Well, I've always had a passion for international affairs, geopolitics. I actually study it back in college at Georgia Tech many, many years ago. And really for the last decade of my career in cybersecurity, the intersection of cyber and geopolitics was very acute because I was basically investigating both when I founded CrowdStrike as well as before that at a, at a cybersecurity company where, where I was a senior executive called McAfee. I was investigating nation state operations. I unveiled major hacks by China designed to steal intellectual property and state secrets. I investigated hacks by North Korea, including the, the Sony hack back in 2014. Obviously, a number of operations by Russia, Iran, and the Saudi Ramco case in 2012. So the cyber dimension of the national security problem has been linked very tightly to the broader national security concerns that we have as a country. And I coined this phrase well over a decade ago that has been now often repeated that we don't actually have a cyber problem. We have a Russia, China, Iran, and North Korea problem of which cyber is just one dimension in which they demonstrate their power and their asymmetric capabilities to hit back at us. And we need to look at cyber within that broader context. So I do think that's not normal in sort of the discipline that you came up in. So I, I admire you for expanding your scope and seeing things in the global context. And I suspect that's made you a million times better at what you do. But let's talk for a minute about Putin. He's still in power by hook or crook, or maybe both. And despite having never worked in the private sector for a day in his life, unless you believe rumors that he once drove a taxi in, what, 1990, he's supposed to be one of the richest men in the world. So how does a guy like Putin get that way? And what was his relationship to Prigozhin, the head of the Wagner militia? Yeah, so a lot of people, when they think of Putin, they sort of focus on two periods of his life, obviously, his tenure as president and briefly as prime minister over the last almost 25 years, and then his career in the KGB in the late 70s and throughout 1980s. And I actually think that the formative moment of Putin's life, both professionally as well as his illicit activities that you allude to with, with him very likely, almost certainly being one of the richest men in the world, has been the 1990s. You know, when you look at his KGB career, he was a mid-level bureaucrat, a lieutenant colonel, not even a colonel in the KGB forces focused on counterintelligence. So he was basically hunting for spies, real and imagined. And I think that drove a lot of his paranoia. But the formative moment really was when he got out of the KGB, having accomplished, frankly, very little during his service in the 1990. The Soviet Union had fallen apart in 1991, of course, and he joined the mayoral administration of a person who, who would become his mentor, Anatoly Sobchak, in St. Petersburg. And within just a few years, he would rise to become deputy mayor of St. Petersburg. While he was in that role in St. Petersburg in the 1990s, his portfolio in the mayoral administrations included 
peculiar things like giving out casino licenses, being in charge of export licenses, being in charge of the ports, reviewing business licenses. Your listeners should also appreciate that during the 1990s, there was a nickname for St. Petersburg before that in the Soviet Union. Of course, it was called Leningrad. It was renamed to, to St. Petersburg in the aftermath of the Soviet Union collapse. But in Russian culture, it was known as Banditsky Peterburg or Bandit Petersburg. There was actually a very famous gangster TV show by that very name in the late 90s. And the city was effectively ruled by organized crime. A lot of major organized criminal organizations have sprung up in the late 80s in Moscow and St. Petersburg, and St. Petersburg in particular, major export city in Russia. They found very lucrative businesses, including gambling, exports, imports, and the like. In his role as eventually deputy mayor of St. Petersburg, there was no way that Putin would not be dealing with those characters on literally a daily basis, particularly given his portfolio. By his own admission, when Prigozhin died a fiery death, uh, incidentally, only 30 miles away from Putin's dacha on the outskirts of St. Petersburg, he admitted that he and Prigozhin got to know each other back then in the early 90s when Putin was in the mayoral administration. And Prigozhin had just gotten out of prison where he served a decade for armed robbery and had just gotten out in 1990 and was getting into lots of businesses. And you can imagine his business career would intersect with Putin, given his operations and business license side. And also Prigozhin was interested in casinos at the time as well and had deep connections within the criminal world as well. So when you ask the question of how did uh, Putin learn to do corruption, it's almost certainly during that period of 1990s when so many Russian oligarchs had learned how to steal from state resources, how to engage with organized crime. And as a result, we know that Putin had accumulated some wealth during that time. And of course, when he became president, the opportunities that were offered to him became orders of magnitude larger. Right. And so these oligarchs also had cash on hand from illicit activity so they could do things like buy the infrastructure that was suddenly available to be bought. The group that's behind Alexei Navalny that uh, runs a lot of his investigations puts out almost weekly videos these days outlining corruption of the entire Putin regime of various oligarchs, government officials, and on some occasions, Putin himself. And what they found is that Putin does not have money assigned to him personally. He uses so-called wallets of oligarchs that basically keep money for him or keep real estate in their name or keep yachts in their name. So nothing ever tracks back to Putin, but effectively it is his to use as he wishes. So just like the drug dealer who puts all of his homes and his mother-in-law's name or something like that, whatever it is, he's got everything sort of outside of himself. That's right. So when he files his tax forms annually, as every bureaucrat in Russia is mandated to do, he says that he just owns, I believe, a car, an old Lada, I think, uh, and one one small apartment. They're OK. They ran for a long time. Uh, those yeah, Ladas. And, and by the way, this is a guy that wears tailored suits and Rolex watches all the time as well, which uh, he wouldn't be able to afford on a presidential salary. Hmm. Okay. So that's how he acquired his wealth. But there's something else going on with Putin right now, which is obviously he's trying to rewrite the new world order. He just met with Kim Jong-un from North Korea. He's also been making comments about how much he likes Trump lately and offering various words of support. Now, taking whether you love or hate Trump out of it, what would his interests be in 
talking to Trump, speaking about how great Trump is. What do you think Putin is after in that situation? And is it an equal exchange? Because Trump, by the same token, has said he admires Putin and he said he'll get out of Ukraine. So is there any one of those men who would get a greater benefit if promises were kept and are promises being made in the public? Well, you know, I, I think this issue is a little bit more complicated. There were indeed a lot of hopes in Russia in 2016 when Donald Trump was elected that the relationship between U.S. and Russia would change dramatically, given then candidate and, and later President Trump's positive views on Russia and Putin and the desire to have a better relationship. But then they got disappointed, disappointed pretty quickly because the relationship, of course, did not change for the better. In some ways, it changed for the worst. And in fact, it was during the Trump era that uh, lethal aid was provided to Ukraine in the form of javelins in, in 2018. So uh, Putin actually in Vladivostok at this uh, conference that you mentioned right before he met with Kim Jong-un was answering a question about the prospects of Donald Trump and whether he thought that another Donald Trump presidency would be positive for Russia. And he was actually very circumspect saying that even though President Trump has said nice things about him, if you look at the track record, Things did not improve in U.S.-Russia relations back in the first term of President Trump. And he actually said that they're unlikely to do so in the second term and that Russia needs to prepare for a long-term confrontation with the West, no matter who's president. That is an interesting note because we are coming to another presidential election. I think one of the concerns, again, is a separate and more robust foreign influence effort. And one would speculate that he would throw as much as he could at one candidate or another because it was so cost efficient when he did it the first time that the public became aware of. Yeah, I'm quite circumspect there as well, because having been involved deeply in investigations of several of the 2016 hacks, I can tell you that I personally don't believe that they had a significant impact on the election. It's, it's unknowable whether any minds were changed, but there's a lot of things that were taking place during the 2016 elections. As your listeners may remember, there were the Comey investigations and all kinds of other noise that was taking place. I think it's really impossible to say whether some emails that I guarantee you the vast majority of Americans never saw and never read that were leaked from the DNC and DCCC and John Podesta really changed a lot of Americans' minds about the candidates in that election. And we have to remember that since 2016, there have been a number of elections that we've held, the 2018 congressional elections, of course, the 2020 presidential elections, 2022, and there was uh, quite minimal Russian interference in those elections. So the idea that you know every election from now on, we will have Russian interference, I think is a little bit of overhyping the threat. You're seeing other actors like China and Iran getting more active in election interference in the United States. But even those are very ham-fisted and I, I think are unlikely to produce results or may even produce a backlash. It's really, really hard to change minds, particularly when Americans are bombarded with 24-7 political ads during election campaigns, massive media outreach by candidates and so forth. So the idea that you know some social media ads or some email hacks would actually dramatically change election results just doesn't, to me, indicate the reality of what's truly going on. So he may very well try in, in 2024. He may not. We know that in 2016, what drove him largely was not necessarily the support for Donald Trump as much as a 
personal hatred of Hillary Clinton that goes back to 2011 when she uh, was supporting the protests against Putin and his upcoming elections. He took that very personally and had a particular hatred for her that I think triggered a lot of the interference in 2016. I'm not sure that he has the same exact feelings for Biden. And and again, I think he, he appreciates that regardless of who is going to be president, U.S. policy towards Russia is unlikely to change because it's not just up to the administration, of course, there's congressional action and just inertia of the U.S. national security establishment. But he also acts and KGB has acted in the past and the FSB in the most recent iteration just to divide Americans like that in and of itself is a goal. I can't see a situation in which he would take a different tack if it meant getting us to fight with each other. You know, it's the old adage, divide and conquer, right? Yeah, except, you know, we're so divided already that I'm not sure we need Russia or anyone else to help us be more divided. I think we're doing a great job of that ourselves, unfortunately. Well, hopefully they'll keep their whatever they spent, maybe less than $80,000, keep that in their pockets instead of getting too involved this time. Let's go ahead and let's talk for just a minute about the introduction of AI. Is AI or any new technology available that would allow foreign actors, including Russia, to amplify their efforts at dividing us, one, and two, is the tech world, are the social media companies prepared to do anything to mitigate against that? So I think AI offers a number of opportunities, both to offense and defense in the cyber domain. And where it is particularly disturbing, of course, is in the ability to generate very realistic text and imagery and voice and and other multimedia channels that can be used to fool people, uh, both in terms of trying to influence populations, but also in terms of facilitating hacks by social engineering people um, to give access to networks and ultimately gain access to sensitive information. One of the things that has always been true in cybersecurity, unfortunately, is that the weakest link has always been the space between the chair and the keyboard, right? It's always been the user that you can, in almost every scenario, with a plausible enough story, with a good enough social engineering approach, get them to click on a link and compromise their machine, open an attachment, do the same, or potentially reset their credentials when you're talking to them on the phone. I serve on something called the Cyber Safety Review Board, the CSRB, which is the government's equivalent of the NTSB that investigates transportation incidents in the cyber domain. So we look at, it's a public-private board with senior government officials and some private sector members like myself, and we look at major cybersecurity failures, cybersecurity incidents, and, and investigate them and try to get lessons learned. And we had have just completed a review of a group called Lapsus and other affiliated groups, which is essentially a loose group of teenagers, some in the United States, some in UK, some in Brazil, that don't have particularly good technical skills. They're not really proficient writing malware or using exploits, but what they're really, really good at is social engineering, getting someone on the phone, getting their credentials, going to the mall and using something called swim swapping where they can basically clone your, your phone number by pretending to be you, to the teenager in the mall at the Verizon or AT&T store and basically getting your number and getting your two-factor authentication SMS codes sent to their phone instead of yours. And through those mechanisms, they've been able to infiltrate some of the largest companies on the planet, some of the most sophisticated like Microsoft and Uber and Twilio and many others. In part, they were so successful because they have native English speakers, 
that can get on the phone and smooth talk employees at these companies, typically in the support desks and gain access. This type of approach has traditionally not been available to foreign actors that have accents that don't know of the American culture, as well as someone who has spent a lot of time here. But now with AI, you do have that ability where you can emulate someone's voice, you can write very compelling phishing emails without grammatical mistakes. And that's where I think AI is going to have a negative effect on the overall cybersecurity ecosystems in the short term. That does sound like a new or a bit of a new menace. Let's go back for just a second, though. You've just written a new book. And one of the things that I think you discuss in there is China and the threat that is China and how the threat from China is different from the threat from Russia. That is not well understood by the general public. Can you talk for a minute about what threat is posed by China and how it is distinct and maybe better, more sophisticated, maybe more soldiers than Russia? Yeah. So the book is called World on the Brink, How America Can Defeat China in the Race for the 21st Century. It is uh, not yet out, but uh, it is available now on pre-order on Amazon, Barnes and Nobles and your local bookstores. And it talks about both the threat of China as well as the ways that we can actually mitigate that threat. I do believe that there's only one country on the planet that can pose an existential strategic threat to the United States this century, and that threat is not Russia, it's not Iran, it's not North Korea, it is China. China, of course, is the second largest economy. Until recently, it was on track to eclipse our economy. It looks like with the significant economic changes and challenges that they're experiencing right now, that may not happen, but nevertheless, they're still gonna be extremely large and extremely powerful given the military modernization that they're undergoing right now. And look, you know, Russia poses a regional threat, Iran poses a regional threat, North Korea poses a regional threat. I don't want to underestimate those actors, but there's only one country that can eclipse the United States in its role of being a global superpower, eclipse its role as being a regional power in Asia, where the future of the planet lies in terms of global populations, economic growth, trade, and so forth. And that country is China. You know, in the book, I argue that we actually have a lot of advantages in the United States vis-a-vis China, but we have to harness those advantages to make sure that there's one thing that China does not do, and that is it does not undertake an invasion of Taiwan because an invasion of Taiwan would remake, successful or not, would remake global geopolitics, would destroy global economy, probably put the world into global depression and has potential, of course, evolving into a kinetic conflict between the United States and China, the first major conflict between two nuclear powers, superpowers. Of course, there was a conflict between India and Pakistan briefly in in 1999. But aside from that, uh, we have not seen two, two major nuclear powers go to major war with each other. So very, very dangerous situation, even if it stays at the conventional level without escalation to nuclear, you're going to have tens of thousands of deaths on both sides, on the US side and Chinese side, not to mention Taiwan. So really, really dangerous scenario that we have to do everything in our power to avoid. And there is things we have to do from a military perspective and defense re-architectures that need to be taken place on Taiwan itself in, in the broader region. But also there's a range of economic measures we need to take to make sure that our deterrence is, is considerably more effective. 
I believe that this is the one thing that can plunge the world into World War III. And it can happen as soon as this decade, unfortunately, given the trajectory of both Chinese bellicosity, but also their modernization of the uh, People's Liberation Army, their military. And that's why I was really passionate about writing this book and trying to uh, convince people that not only is this a critical threat, but it's a threat that we can mitigate and and hopefully avoid if we do the right things now. But we can't wait. It's It's that urgent. Well, let's talk about that for just a second. That's a very compelling thought. We've got a large dependence on semiconductor production in Taiwan, and we have just passed all sorts of sanctions and rules regarding semiconductors produced in China. China has just turned around and banned the iPhone while introducing a cheaper version of the iPhone that probably was based on the code provided them by Apple in order to do business in China, requirement of Chinese law. And so we've gotten into this tit for tat, and we're quite dependent on production of semiconductors in a very small country that is part of the nation islands, one nation islands, whatever they're called. And China has said previously that they will reacquire Taiwan, that that's part of their long-term plan. They have so many long-term plans. Let's talk for a second about what you think would precipitate something like this and whether technology, semiconductors, and that market would play a role in that. Yeah, I actually think that the reasons for why China may invade Taiwan have very little to do with semiconductors. That's sort of a icing on the cake scenario. Look, China has wanted to take Taiwan long before Taiwan manufactured a single semiconductor, right? So this goes back to history and destiny and ego and their own view of their own security. So there's a whole slew of reasons for why they wanted to do this, going back to the days of Mao. In the book, we research a lot of the early Chinese thinking on Taiwan and the comparisons to the Cold War with the Soviet Union. And I firmly believe that we are already in Cold War II. We've just maybe not realized this yet for some years, but China has certainly been acting and treating it that way. But when it comes to chips, the situation is actually much worse than you describe, unfortunately, because not only is there a dependency on Taiwan for the manufacture of advanced chips, as well as what I call foundational chips, chips that are so-called mature or legacy nodes, basically above you know, 18, 20 nanometers, they're different definitions. But the vast majority of the chips that we use in our daily life, the vast majority of the chips we use in our military systems are actually not advanced chips. They're these foundational chips without which you really have nothing. People sort of think about the the need to corner the market on advanced chips, be the first ones to two nanometer, one nanometer, and so forth. But that actually is about 10% of the global chips market. And the primary uses for advanced chips are your, your phone, your laptop and servers in data centers, including ones that, that build AI uh, systems, so the cloud computing environment, your gaming platforms, your Xboxes and Nintendo Playstations, and some very specific applications in advanced weapon systems related to imagery and guidance. But everything else is actually foundational chips. And even if you look at your iPhone, it has you know about three chips in that iPhone that are advanced, uh, obviously the processor and the memory, uh, as well as the 5G chip. But literally, there's dozens of other chips in that iPhone that make it a phone. Without any of those chips, which are all foundational chips, you actually don't have an iPhone. But if I told you that I could give you 
foundational chips that are maybe four or five years old, you could make a decent iPhone that's, you know, 2019, circa 2019 that you were perfectly happy with. So the foundational chips are really, really critical. Taiwan produces a number of them, but China is rapidly ramping up production of foundational chips. So our export control policy has been designed in a very tailored fashion to prevent China from being able to achieve advances in those advanced chips, although even that policy has had a lot of loopholes in it, as we've just recently seen with the release of the Huawei chip uh, that was produced by SMIC, a Chinese chips manufacturer that was done at seven nanometers, a very disturbing development. The reason that they were able to do so is because they didn't need to use these really advanced SML EUV machines that TSMC and other chips manufacturers like Intel are using right now to do seven nanometers, five and three. They've been able to use an older generation of machines to achieve the same result, perhaps not at a good enough yield or production volume, but nevertheless, they're able to manufacture them. And those machines have not been banned by, by export control policy. But the more troubling development is now realizing that they're efforts and advanced chips are going to be curtailed by these export controls and more limited, the Chinese are doubling down on cornering the foundational chips market. They're subsidizing it and trying to drive everyone else out of business. So you can imagine a scenario in, let's say, five years where US, Taiwan, and Korea still have the vast majority of the advanced chips production, that 10% of the market, and China owns the other 90%, without which you can't make any device. And that is a trajectory we're on right now, which is very, very dangerous, well beyond the dangers of our dependency on Taiwan itself. And the CHIPS Act doesn't go far enough to address this. And I don't know, can we gear up? Uh, let's be frank. That sounds like that would be quite the undertaking. Foundation. Yeah, the CHIPS Act is important. In part, it's it's important because it also incentivized a lot of spending on semiconductors, both private sector spending as well as by other governments. So the Europeans uh, are passing their own version of the CHIPS Act. Japanese and Koreans are doing incentives, other countries around the world, obviously private sector is putting money in. So overall, there's over a trillion dollars of investment, even though the CHIPS Act with the tax subsidies is only about 75 billion of that, which is really positive. And, and we need to appreciate that the semiconductor industry is not returning at scale back to the United States. Many of the companies may be based here, but manufacturing is not going to be here. Even Intel you know, is building a fab not just in Ohio, but it's building one in Germany. It's looking at packaging in Poland and elsewhere. And that's fine. We should be focused not on just bringing all production back to the United States, where it's going to be much less economical, much more expensive in terms of environmental permitting, labor costs and the like, but we should be looking at French shoring. How do we diversify our supply chain away from dangerous regions and rely on France, rely on friends in Europe, rely on Japan, rely on Singapore, rely on Mexico and other countries where we can do production alongside US production. The key thing though, is to make sure that we prevent China from achieving chips breakout capabilities where they're able to dominate either the advanced chips market or the foundational chips market. And we can absolutely do that because right now we still control the equipment that is necessary, the advanced equipment that is necessary to manufacture chips. Uh, they're essentially manufactured by three countries, Netherlands, US, and Japan. Those three countries coming together and coordinating their export control measures can deny China that equipment and will take them many years to try to catch up and 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 try to produce that that equipment themselves and that's what we need to be doing to make make sure that we stay ahead we and our allies stay ahead of china 
but we're still going to need the minerals. And China's trying to lock down minerals all over the world. And quite frankly, so is Russia. There are certain things that we're going to have to have. And China has made inroads. And I don't know, if you go to Africa, you will see Chinese workers everywhere that you go. Every country that you visit, paving the streets, building highways, building all sorts of things. And they tend to focus on countries where the minerals that are used in things like semiconductors and other high technology can be found. So I like the idea of friendship on the development, the fabs and, and the equipment. I guess the secondary question becomes that's part of it, but then we have to control these important minerals. Have you had any thoughts on that? We do. And the book talks a lot about that because if we're successful on the chip side, but China, of course, denies us critical minerals that they're able to mine and refine, we're still in a really terrible position. So we need to do both. Then a good thing is that those minerals, of course, are available everywhere, including the United States. Uh, there was just news last week that we may have discovered the largest lithium deposits on Earth in Nevada. They have to be proven, but nevertheless, really positive development. Um, we have a lot of minerals here in the United States. Our allies like Canada and others in Latin America have massive deposits of various uh, critical minerals, including rare earths. What we lack is ability to quickly mine for those minerals because of permitting issues and refine them. Um, so China right now controls refining in large part because they subsidize it, because they don't adhere to high standards of environmental production that we insist on when we do it. And we have to use, I think, our trade mechanisms to level the playing field. So China is effectively engaged in illegal dumping when they're subsidizing their own industry, whether it's rare earth refining or other minerals. And we have to compensate for that by putting tariffs in place to raise the price, to make the price more economical for our own producers, whether it's in the United States or allied countries, to do the same. It is critical for our national security and it is critical for basic fairness, where you should not let China dominate that particular industry through legal subsidies. Well, and Berkshire Hathaway has taken some interest in the salt and lake, but you're looking at in America, a generation of whom, you know, saw the film Aaron Brockovich, and they look at these mining operations and they're concerned about the long-term health effects. So I take your point. Obviously, a lot of environmental controls were placed, but we may reach a point in terms of our national security when some of that ends up by the wayside or being modified or at least sped up. Well, so look, we live on one planet, right? So environmental disasters in China do not stay in China. They affect quality of our air and, and the quality of life on this planet for all of us. So just by saying, well, we don't want to do dirty mining and refining, which, by the way, we can actually do in a much cleaner way using our high standards and, and advanced technologies here, which is going to let China do it. That doesn't actually solve the global problem of reducing pollution and reducing climate change. So if we're actually serious about it, let's raise the standards across the world and make sure that we penalize anyone that doesn't adhere to those standards, whether they're uh, Chinese refineries or American refineries or whomever else. All right. So you're looking out at the U.S. right now, though, and we don't have the most functional Congress that we've ever had. We also don't have a system of national education, and we're going to need a lot of young people to join your ranks. Now, obviously, you're a resounding success, but there, you know, my dad came from Appalachia. I don't think he actually finished high school. He had to go to college on the GI Bill before he realized that he was a math genius and eventually wound up at NASA and ultimately at the CIA in their science and technology area. But it was one teacher who made a difference in him 
had there been a national education, I think its choices uh, might have been different, its opportunities different early. Have you thought about where we can get from arguing over the content of books and other distractions to building a meaningful cadre of cyber-abled young people? Do you think that's something that's important? Not only have I thought about it, I, I try to do something about it. So two years ago, I launched an institute at Johns Hopkins School of Advanced International Studies, SICE, called the Alperovich Institute for Cybersecurity Studies that now produces master's degrees and, and PhDs in this field, particularly the focus is the intersection of policy and cybersecurity and intelligence studies. It's about getting people that understand Global affairs. Uh, obviously, SICE is one of the premier graduate schools that, that are teaching international relations and getting those people to understand the ins and outs of cyber, cyber intelligence, strategic studies. And, you know, that's part of my way of trying to increase the pool of talent that is available to American companies and, uh, frankly, companies worldwide to recruit from to try to do a little bit of help to, to solve the problem. And what do you think about a national system of primary education in cyber. Do you think that that would place the United States at a more strategic advantage than we are today? If you consider the fact that most states depend on property taxes to pay for education, and there are many states that are in very bad shape because of the shuttering of American manufacturing, it feels unfortunate that children there may be consigned to a life sort of less technically challenging, less interesting, because they don't have the same educational opportunities. Have you thought about it that way? Or do memories of Russia haunt on that? No, look, you know, we, we have a really strange dichotomy in this country where we have by far the best higher education, the best universities, both at undergrad and graduate level, that is the envy of the world. And we have so many people from countries all over the planet trying to come here and study but our K through 12 is lagging behind significantly much of the rest of the developed world. And that's clearly something that we need to focus on. I personally think we need a much bigger focus on broader STEM education, as well as uh, a focus on cyber earlier on, particularly in giving kids early education on cyber hygiene, cyber threats, how they can personally keep their identity safe online, how they can interact with others safely online. There needs to be much greater focus, I think, and perhaps even as early as middle schools on that. All right. Well, Luke, you've, you've given a lot of thought to this. What do you think Congress and the president could do right now in the next five years to improve our odds against China? That is literally the topic of my book, so I'm not going to recite 300 some odd pages right now. But first and foremost, we need to appreciate that this is the number one threat that we face as a nation, that we need to do all that we can, both at the national level and at an individual level. I think every American should be waking up every day and thinking, how do we make sure that we avoid World War III with China over Taiwan that is unfortunately much more likely than it was even just a few years ago? There's a range of things we can do as a country. There's a range of things we can do as individuals. It involves export controls to make sure that we slow China down in some of its developments. It involves investments in domestic capabilities and allied capabilities. It involves rebuilding some of our freight alliances and potentially creating new ones. It involves restructuring of our defense industrial base. It involves a number of um, deterrence measures that we have to be taking in the region. So 
pre-order the book and it will go through the entire slew of things that we need to be doing to make sure we avoid the worst case scenario. Dimitri, it's been great to talk to you. Thanks for having me. Really appreciate it. All right. My guest tonight has been Dimitri Alperovich, the co-founder and executive chairman of the Silverado Policy Accelerator, a nonprofit focused on advancing American prosperity and global leadership in the 21st century and beyond. He's the co-founder of CrowdStrike, a leading cybersecurity company, and he has helped mitigate, quite frankly, a number of the largest cyber attacks of the past decade and a half. He's written a book recently, which you can find on Amazon for pre-order. We'll hyperlink in the notes on this cast. It's called World on the Brink, and he wrote it with a very fine author, Garrett Graff, with whom I'm sure you're familiar. He is also a host of a podcast known as Geopolitics Decanted, and we will hyperlink to the podcast as well. We'll also hyperlink to Dimitri's full bio in the notes to this cast. We will also hyperlink to other articles on the important work that Dimitri has done, as well as articles that he has authored. Thanks for listening. And now we pivot to Elisa's brief conversation with Josh Geltzer as he weighs in on the FISA Section 702 debate. So tonight we're going to hear again from Josh Geltzer, who is the deputy assistant to the president and deputy homeland security advisor to Biden. He is one of the people who is requesting that 702 be reauthorized. And I wanted to give him a chance to respond to some of Liza Goyteen's extremely good points made on 702 and sort of generally concerns about privacy. So, Josh, Liza's raised a number of things. You've had an opportunity to hear some of them now, including the number of queries, which she characterized as widespread violation, searches of political donors, journalists, two members of of Congress. And sort of generally, she's talking about a warrant requirement with kind of all the attendant bells and whistles and exceptions you might imagine would otherwise exist under the Fourth Amendment. Based on what you've been looking at and your thoughts about 702 on this score. Thank you so much for the chance to to join you again. And I'm really, really glad that your listeners have had a chance to hear from Liza. She is uh, exceptionally thoughtful and has spent a lot of time thinking about and frankly caring about these issues. And it's uh, to the benefit of public dialogue and discussion when folks are able to hear from from her and, and others who bring different perspectives to the issue. That said, I do have a different perspective and, and, and it's one informed by our responsibility as a government to utilize the authorities available to us to protect the American people and to protect the, the country. So there are a few things I think worth responding to. One is to tackle head on the compliance errors of the past. I said this when you and I spoke uh, on an earlier episode, but compliance errors are not okay. We say that loudly. We say that clearly as a government. We do think we have found the right responses and correctives to those, and they are not a so-called warrant requirement. Compliance errors, which are largely talked about in the context of FBI's use of identifiers associated with U.S. persons, so-called U.S. person queries, to query already lawfully collected 702 information, have been reduced dramatically. Those compliance errors went down 93% from 2021 to 2022, with an increase in the compliance rate within the U.S. person query still conducted. And it's obvious why those reforms work. They now require opting in to 702 information in order to query. They require providing a written justification as to why the query fits within the court-approved rules for sifting and sorting this information in this way. They also require higher level approval 
for so-called batch queries, which are when multiple query terms are used at the same time, the query 702 data, and those account for a lot of those earlier compliance errors. Because when you have a batch query, a little bit of a mistake can become a big number of a compliance error. We think those have been responsive. In fact, we know it from the data. And what's more, we are strongly supportive of taking those policy reforms and in this reauthorization cycle, entrenching them in statute as a way of ensuring that they aren't rolled back by this administration or any future one. So we think we have the right responses to the problems of the past. The other thing I'll say, just specifically on the notion of a so-called warrant requirement, is it is just a mismatch. A warrant is acquired, uh, or sought at least, when new information is being obtained by the government. But here, this information has already been lawfully acquired and indeed acquired under the relevant standards, the standards that apply when you're targeting non-US persons located abroad. The question that becomes, how do you organize it? How do you sort and sift it so that the analysts working hard to surface the information that can be used to prevent an assassination on US soil, and these are real examples, to prevent Russian atrocities in Ukraine by rallying the world and showing them what, what, what's happening there, to prevent infirmities being introduced into US critical infrastructure. The question is, when it's already being held, can you sort it and sift it and organize it in a way that surfaces the relevant information so that it can be acted on? That is not what a warrant is for. That is what querying rules and procedures are for. That is why we work to improve those. But it is simply a mismatch to seek a so-called warrant or court order before looking at that which has already been lawfully collected and is now held by the U.S. government. One last question for you. I think one of the concerns that Liza has expressed is that having a non-warrant requirement like a somebody in the FBI or a higher level person who agrees is sort of reminiscent of what happened previously when Robert Kennedy was able to sign off on wiretaps domestically. Do you see those two things as analogous or are they in fact different? They are different. And this is where the comparisons being made by some of the critics of the program really just don't fit the, the facts, the nature of this authority and what it does. Remember that this authority is entirely about targeting non-U.S. persons located abroad. These are individuals who lack Fourth Amendment rights. And other collection against them requires no statutory framework. It's done by executive order alone, executive order 12333. The thing that creates a quirk as something distinctive about the collection here is the fact that these non-U.S. persons located abroad who lack Fourth Amendment rights are trying to use American technology against America. They are using the, let's say, email services and other electronic communication services that represent American ingenuity that are relied on around the world for their reliability, their ease, et cetera. And they're trying to use that very technology against America and Americans. Perhaps somewhat ironically, that actually raises the protection afforded them because it's U.S. companies that we in the executive branch now need to work with to acquire information communicated by those non-U.S. persons located abroad. But that is the baseline. And the fact that we've now taken a framework and said, under a statutory regime, we will go to the FISA court once a year for approval in order to work with these companies to get the communications of those non-U.S. persons located abroad. And then once we have it, we will do something always intended, which is sort and sift and arrange it to understand the real threats to the United States, which very much was always expected to include when those non-US persons located abroad were in touch with Americans. 
because they were trying to make those Americans engage in terrorist attacks, because they had hacked a U.S. company and were now exfiltrating its, its data and its information and its intellectual property, because they're trying to recruit maybe an unwitting American as a spy for a hostile power. That's some of the most important information to see. And so the baseline for this is one in which non-U.S. persons located abroad have no statutory framework. But here there is a bit more recognizing that deliberate attempt by terrorists, by proliferators, by hostile states to use America's own ingenuity, our own electronic communication service providers against us. So you're causing me to remember that scene in Fellini's La Strada. Remember when he goes to start the motorcycle and it works? And he said, of course, it's American. All right. If you like Fellini, you'll remember that immediately. You know, if you're Josh and it's late and you're still sitting in the White House, maybe not so much. All right. I'm always glad to see you. I'm always. And thank you for giving a shout out to our wonderful colleague, Liza. And we hope to talk to you again soon. I look forward to it. Thank you so much for having me back. Thanks for listening. And we invite you to subscribe, like, and rate us on your listening app of choice. Share this episode with a friend and have an intelligent conversation about foreign influence efforts, China, elections, and what it means to America, not to any one candidate. Strive to share your opinions in a constructive way, recognizing that America's national security largely depends on our ability to find a common language in a time of social media echo chambers. You can communicate with us on Twitter or X as we're now forced to call it, as well as other platforms. We use the handle at ABA NatSec. Have thoughts you want to share with us in more detail? You can reach us at National Security at AmericanBar.org. Our writer and producer is me, Elisa Poteet, always here in my individual capacity. Francis Berkham is our editor and my co-producer. Rebecca Salito is our program manager. And my other co-producer is Holly McMahon, along with the amazing leaders of the standing committee on law and national security. And before you go, mark your calendars for the 33rd Annual Review of the Field of National Security Law, CLE Conference, this November 16th through 17th, held at the Renaissance Washington, D.C. Downtown Hotel. Don't miss out on engaging presentations, thought-provoking panels, and unparalleled networking opportunities. Registration link and event details can be found in the episode description. We look forward to seeing you there. The views expressed on national security law today have not been approved by the House of Delegates or the Board of Governors of the American Bar Association, and this recording should not be construed as representing ABA policy.